0: You're listening to the Belmar Church Sermon Podcast. For more information about Belmar or to see our upcoming events, visit belmarchurch.com. We began a series a couple of weeks ago uh, talking about restoration and talking about this idea of God taking the old and making it new. Uh, we talked at the first week about how restoration in our lives really begins with repentance, that we've got to turn from our sin, from our own desires, and turn to God. And then He begins that work in us. We talked last week about the idea that God is in the restoration and the modification business, that He is a God of creation, but also a God of recreation. And we want to look this morning in the Gospel of Luke. The Gospel is. Uh, that word gospel means good news, and the gospels are just the stories of Jesus. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John in the New Testament all tell the story of Jesus uh, from different perspectives. And Luke uh, wrote his gospel. In Luke chapter 5, several events are recorded. It says there that, Luke, that Jesus and his followers went to a village in Galilee. And and Luke says that the Pharisees and the Sadducees, who were these religious leaders, would always show up. And they always were listening to what Jesus said, not because they wanted to learn of him, but because they were critical of him. Jesus healed a paralyzed man. And then in Luke chapter 5 and verse 27, it says this, Later, as Jesus left the town he saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at his tax collector's booth. Follow me and be my disciple, Jesus said to him. So Levi got up, left everything, and followed him. Now, unlike today when uh, tax collectors and the Internal Revenue Service are considered the pinnacle of our public servants, um, in those days, tax collectors might have been looked on with a little disdain. Some of you are like, isn't that like today? Well, I don't want to say that. I think I've shared this before. A couple of years ago, uh, my wife and I, our taxes, we, we didn't have a full audit, but the IRS called. That's always a fun conversation. They're like, you need to bring in some more documentation. And we went into this office, it wasn't far from our home and we had all the documentation and, and I knew that what they were questioning, there really was no question about. Uh, we had all of that. And so i fairly relaxed for a meeting with the IRS. And like I do when I'm a little stressed, and also when I'm not stressed pretty much all the time, I tried to crack a joke. And I can be fairly humorous at times. And what I said to this guy, I don't remember what it was, but it was pretty good. And he just kind of gave me one of these. I thought, really? No wonder you guys have that reputation. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> he was fair. We didn't get thrown in jail or penalized. Everything was good. In the Jewish day, though, there was another element to tax collectors. See, The Jews were under Roman occupation. The Roman Empire controlled the Hebrew people. And so the taxes that were collected were from Rome. The Jews were supposed to come and give sacrifices, and they they gave money uh, in different ways. But this was a constant reminder that they were not free, they were not independent, they were under Roman rule, and that the Jewish tax collectors were Jews who were doing the work of the Romans. And so not only were they looked down upon just because no one really enjoys paying taxes, but because these men in particular were viewed as sellouts. As those who were not working for their own people, but for the occupying empire. That's why in the New Testament, the Bible often says that Jesus ate with sinners. That would be a low rung of people in the lifestyle in which they lived, and tax collectors. Lest we think that tax collectors were just normal sinners, they were a rung below. And so Jesus goes to this tax collector, this man and he says, I want you to be one of my followers. He leaves everything and he follows after Jesus. Later in Luke five twenty nine, Levi held a banquet in his home with Jesus as the guest of honor. Many of Levi's fellow tax collectors and other guests also ate with them. You can imagine if you're a tax collector and you're shunned by society, you're at least going to stick together with the other tax collectors. Those were Levi's friends. Jesus would change his name to Matthew. He would be his, his, his disciple Matthew. But before this, he has this party. But the Pharisees and their teachers of religious complained bitterly to Jesus' disciples. Why do you eat and drink with such scum? If Jesus is supposed to be the great teacher, what's he doing with these people? If if he's the one who has revelation from God, why give it to these people? And so we want to look this morning at four illustrations from this passage that that really relate to how God desires to bring restoration and transformation in our lives. The first is the response of Jesus. As Luke 5 continues, Jesus answered them, verse 31, healthy people don't need a doctor. Sick people do. I have come to call not those who think they are righteous, but those who know they are sinners and need to repent. See, in that, Jesus highlights and Ill- illustrates here a problem with the religious leaders. Jesus said, a doctor is needed by sick people, not by healthy people. And he said, I'm looking for people that know they are sinners, not people who think they're righteous. See, we all know people, and maybe you've even been a person who thinks you're healthy when you're not. You ever get a cold or the flu coming on, some kind of a sickness, but you pretend it's not really that? I've done that. Oh, it's just allergies. You know, two days later, those allergies have me in bed with a fever. Oh, I'm going to be okay. Maybe, never mind. Oh, wait, we got a couple more points. I'll start a fight. But these religious leaders weren't looking for Jesus as the Messiah because they didn't think they had a need. They didn't think they had a problem. If we're not careful, we can go to church We can receive the Lord's Supper, we can serve him, and we can begin to think we're pretty good. Jesus said this about the religious leaders in Matthew 23, beginning in verse 25. What sorrow awaits you, teachers of religious law, and you Pharisees, hypocrites! For you are so careful to clean the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside you are filthy, full of greed and self-indulgence you blind Pharisee, first wash the inside of the cup and the dish, and then the outside will become clean too. What sorrow awaits you, teachers of religious law, and you Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, beautiful on the outside, but filled on the inside with dead people's bones and all sorts of impurity. Outwardly, you look like righteous people, but inwardly, your hearts are filled with hypocrisy and lawlessness. It's one of the major criticisms of the church, right? That the church is full of hypocrites. And truly, we wanna to try to follow after Jesus. We wanna to try to emulate him. We wanna live lives of righteousness. But we need to be careful lest we begin to think that the things that we are doing are impressing either to others or to God himself. But God sees our heart. He knows our thoughts and our intents. And let me just clue you in. We serve a holy and a righteous God. He is not impressed with us, but he does love us. And he seeks to make us clean through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. See, God desires to heal us and he calls us to follow after him. Peter wrote in 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 21, and in this he's quoting from Isaiah 53. He says, for God called you to do good, even if it means suffering as Christ suffered for you. He is our example and you must follow in his steps. Verse 24 says, he personally carried our sins in his body on the cross so that we can be dead to sin and live for what is right. By his wound, you are healed. It is through the sacrifice of Jesus, through his shed blood, like we talked about in the Lord's Supper, that we can be healed, that we can be made whole and in a relationship with God. Jesus Christ paid the price for our sin, for our shortcomings, so that we could be forgiven. We've got to recognize that need. The Pharisees looked at Jesus and they judged him, not realizing that this was God made flesh and they should have been worshiping and repenting before him. But they thought, They were pretty good. Comparison and and, and competition, the Bible says amongst ourselves, is a foolish thing. Maybe you're more spiritual than I am, but I got to tell you, it creeps into my heart and my thoughts all of the time. All of the time. I mean, When a guy passed me on his motorcycle yesterday, only to hit the red light, but he's right in front of me, there was a little part of me that just irked. Why? Because I was second at the light when I should have been first. It was my rightful place, but he cut right in there. You say, Well, preacher, that's quite unspiritual of you. Well, it gets a lot worse. That's just me driving. I mean, I pulled into my driveway the other day and, and we'd had so much rain. I was looking at how beautiful my grass looked. And you know what I immediately did? Looked at my neighbors. <laughs> it's like it's not raining over there quite as well as it is here. Hallelujah. I, I know. But don't we do that? We look at our own sin and we say, well, yeah, it's bad, but I'm not as bad as. Well, I mean, compared to this person, but that's not the standard. You realize that God's standard is righteousness or holiness. He is a holy God. That means a God who is without fault, without sin not just at that moment, but for eternity. And guess what? We don't come close. Well, I'm better than that person. Yeah, but you're not even close to the standard, which is righteousness. We need to recognize that we are sick and in need of a physician. We are sinners and in need of a Savior. Jesus goes on in Luke chapter 5, or the gospel goes on and says, one day some people said to Jesus, John the Baptist's disciples fast and pray regularly, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees. Why are your disciples always eating and drinking? Fasting was an important part of the the Jewish uh, religion. They were very specific times in which they would go without eating and sometimes for short periods without eating or drinking. And Jesus would later correct this and, and say that when we fast, we shouldn't make a show of it because what, the, what would happen is the Jews would, would make a show of the fact that they were fasting. They would look tired and unenergized. They would would display by their demeanor the fact that they were deprived of food. It's interesting, isn't it? I certainly am not someone who is deprived of food. Do you remember how hungry you got as a little kid? I do. I don't get that hungry anymore. I don't know if I just eat too much or what it is. But I remember as a little kid, like my stomach hurt. And I thought I was probably four or five minutes away from actual starvation death. And I would tell my parents that I'm starving. And and they would be like, oh, yeah, yeah, we're going to eat. And I'm like, no, 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 you don't understand. I may not make it to dinner time. I need a cookie now. And the Jews would make this big show of fasting. Jesus, in answering this question in Luke five, says, "Do wedding guests fa- fast while celebrating with the groom? Of course not. But someday the groom will be taken away from them, and they then they will fast. See, abiding with Jesus brings joy." I have two children. I have three children. Let me be. My daughter just got scared. I have two children who are married. One daughter who's not. When my other two children got married, that was a big deal. You know, there's planning to take place. And part of what took place was, okay, we're going to have to be like, people are going to be looking at us, so I might need to go on a diet to prepare for this thing, you know? I mean, I've got to get in the suit, or I've got to do whatever. So that was, that was part of the process. But on that day, on the wedding day, well then that's the reward, right? Right? You've done all this planning. You've paid all these bills. And on that day, you get to enjoy yourself. That includes the the ceremony and the reception, the, the music and the dancing, but it also includes the food. Like, I didn't go on a diet to lose weight and then get to the wedding cake and be like, no, I've really just learned I don't need cake. I mean, are you kidding me? That's the whole point. And Jesus said, listen, decide My followers, they don't need to mourn and fast now. They're with me. And abiding with Jesus brings us joy. John talked about this when he talked about the vine and the branches. And he said, we abide in him. We are in him. He's a part of us. And, and Jesus said in John 15, verse 9, I have loved you even as the Father has loved me. Remain in my love when you obey my commandments, you remain in my love. I obey my father's commandments and remain in his love. And he says this, I have told you these things so that you will be, you will be filled with my joy. Yes, your joy will overflow. Being with Jesus brings us joy. It doesn't mean everything in our life is perfect. It doesn't mean that there aren't sad and difficult things that come, but it means that in him is a joy in our life. And Jesus is expressing that when asked about this idea of fasting. It's not that we don't fast. Fasting's not commanded in the New Testament, but it is assumed. We see in Acts chapter 13, Uh, and I'll not take the time to read all of that, but, uh, it's the church at Corinth and they're, they're gonna choose out Paul and Barnabas to go out and, and share the good news of Jesus. And it says twice there that they prayed and they fasted. But we don't do that to make a show of it. We do that as a discipline in our, in our prayer and our walk with God. But we are always abiding with Jesus. And we always have the joy that comes from him. This is part of the transformation that he seeks to do in our life. Luke 5 goes on, and Jesus gave them another illustration. He said, no one tears a piece of cloth from a new garment and uses it to patch an old garment. For then the new garment would be ruined, and the new patch wouldn't even match the old garment. Jesus now is going to talk about patching things. I'm the oldest of three boys. That, that was a good thing in some way. One, I never had a lot of hand-me-downs. I, that, that is not true for my brothers they got a lot of hand-me-downs. In my family, most of the time, the clothes would go from me to my cousin and then back to my younger brother. So by the time he got them, they had been hand-me-downed twice. And I don't know if you remember, but back when I was a kid, this is a long time ago, first of all, we bought pants Jeans and they didn't already have holes in them. They just, yeah, that's the way they made them back then. It was crazy. And then we would get holes in them, and my mom would buy these iron on patches. You remember those? She would iron them on. They were never, first of all, they were never the same like color exactly as your jeans. So it's just like an advertisement these are old jeans. And so that would be like, you know, my mom, I can remember my mom. She'd be like, these are your school jeans. Like, and, and, and we would be in the car and we'd be coming home from school. My mom would say, just go, go right into your room and take off your school jeans and put on your play jeans. And your play jeans were like that had holes in them or the patches. Why? Because those were old. Jesus Christ did not come and does not desire to be a part of your life to just patch things up. He's not just a band-aid for this part of your life. The Bible says if we are in Christ, we are a new creation. Listen, if you're coming to church or you're reading your Bible and you're saying, you know, God, I've pretty much got my life figured out, but I need a little bit of help over here. That's not what Jesus is about. He's not a patch that you need. He's a transformation. He desires to make all things new. God didn't come to give us patchwork religion. And we live in that day and age. I'll talk to people and they will say, you know, preacher, I like this about the Bible, but I don't like this. Or, you know, I, I enjoy this, but I don't really care for this. Listen, you're not the discerner. God Almighty is. He tells us what we need. God is not about just patching the old. He's about transforming into something entirely new. And he gives one last illustration. Jesus goes on in Luke 5 and verse 37 said, and he says, And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. For the new wine would burst the wineskins, spilling the wine... And ruining the skins. New wine must be stored in new wineskins, but no one who drinks the old wine seems to want the new. The old is just fine, they say. Now, everything I know about wine and wineskins, I learned from reading about it. Because we don't tend to put wine in wineskins today. But they would, in, in that time, they would take juice, And they would put it in skins, bags that were made of different animal parts. But they were fresh. So that as the wine would age, different gases would be expelled. Those skins could stretch and expand to take and hold that wine. But if you had an old wine skin and you had Drunk the wine out of it, you would not want to put new wine in because they were old and they were brittle. And new wine, as it fermented and aged, would expand and crack, and the wineskin would be destroyed, and the wine would be lost. And what Jesus is saying is it's all new. It's an entirely new thing. It's not putting a patch on it. It's not pouring a little new wine in with the old. It's a whole new thing. This is what God desires to do with us. We talked last week about the fact that the Bible says our thoughts and our attitudes need to be transformed. Everything about us needs to change. And God is continually, when we are born again and we come to know him as Savior, he is continually working to mold us into the image of Jesus. Now, this is an important thing for us to understand. We understand that when we're young. But as we age, if we're not careful, we can forget that. And we can begin to think, Oh, I must be like Jesus wants me to be. But none of us are fully formed like Christ. That means there's still thoughts and attitudes and actions that God desires to change in us. He's still at work in us. And he desires to make us new. See, the Jewish leaders resisted what God was doing. Hebrews chapter 8 and verse 13 says, when God speaks of a new covenant, it means he has made the first one obsolete. It is now out of date and will soon disappear. This was difficult for the Jews to accept because they had grown up Worshipping a certain way and offering sacrifices and celebrating certain holidays and, and fasting at certain times. And for God to come and change all of that, they said, no, we want to, we want to hold on to these old things. And we do the same thing. God desires to come and transform us, but we want to hold on to an old sin or an old idea or an old attitude. And he says, no, I want to transform you into the image of Jesus. You can't put new wine in an old wineskin. I want to close this morning with just a couple of verses. Revelation chapter 21 and verse 5. Revelation, of course, is this prophetic book about what God will do in the last days. And here's what it says at, towards the very end of this book. And the one sitting on the throne, Jesus himself said, look, I'm making everything new. And then he said to me, write this down for what I tell you is trustworthy and true. Even in Revelation, where the Bible talks about judgment and the earth being being put on fire, it says God will make things new. We'll have a new heaven, a new earth. We will be transformed. We will go from mortal to immortal. If we know Christ is our Savior, we will be even more transformed into the image of God. And God desires to begin that process in our life right now first Corinthians or 2 Corinthians chapter five and verse 17 says this means that anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person the old life is gone a new life has begun my challenge this morning is this first of all do you know Jesus Christ is your savior has there been a place and a time in your life where you've repented. You've asked God to forgive you of the wrong things you've done. That word repentance means to turn. You turn from your sin, your own desires, and you turn to God. The Bible says that we put our faith and our trust in him. Jesus said in John chapter 3 that we are born again. We're spiritually born, made alive. If you've never taken that step of faith, being born is the first step. And today can be that day. Even as I'm closing up this sermon this morning, right there in your seat, you can call out to God and say, God, save me, a sinner. I put my faith, my trust in you. Maybe you're here this morning Christ as your Savior. Maybe you've walked with him. But maybe you need to be reminded this morning that he is not done with his transformation of you. He still desires to to make things new with you, new thoughts, new attitudes, new actions. Maybe you needed to be reminded today that God is still a transforming, a restorative God. Let's pray this morning. Dear dear Lord, we thank you for your love and for your goodness to us. God, I know that so often we fall so short of what you would have for us. But God, I pray that Through your word, we would be reminded today of that you are still at work in our hearts and in our lives. Lord, if there's somebody here that does not know you as Savior, God, I pray that even in this moment, they would call out to you, ask you to save them, to give them new life. God, this morning, maybe... We just need to call out to you and ask you to restore and renew the joy of our salvation. To begin to work anew and afresh in us. God, we thank you for your word and for the grace that you give to us. In Christ Jesus' name we pray. Amen.